This call may be recorded or transcribed. Hello, Ernest. Hello. Anish. Hey, Ernest. How are you doing? All right. How are you? Ah, tired. Day of running errands. I also had a very long talk with Anisha's company, Quilt to Data, this morning, which was very fruitful. Mm. Uh, Is he joining us today? I think he will. Um, I know he had a busy day, too. Possibly he's had enough of me and wants a break, which I wouldn't blame him for. How's your week been? Uh, It's been okay. It's been good. You've been looking at uh, Dogecoin, or was that just in passing? That, well, yes, uh, in passing it. But, uh, I like the, the the foundation that they're trying to reestablish, that they're reestablishing it. I like the values. That's, that's what I posted, uh, because I like mm. their three tenants, which I've forgotten, but one is like uh, help people, um uh well I could get it. Oh. Hello. Hey Anish. Hey everyone, how's it going? Doing good. good. I was just telling you may have had too much of me and you were trying to take a break. <laughs> well no I'm right well I'm waiting myself for the exciting conclusion of the autocracy. <laughs> mm. Yes. So no. So I was uh, talking about Dogecoin, that uh, they have a, a manifesto. Um, it, you know, it's uh, what attracted me most is the, their values, their set of values that they have. Uh, oh, it's here. Being useful, uh, we value utility over technical brilliance, being personable, value individuals and interactions over profit-driven economics, being welcoming, we value collaboration and trust over competition and exclusivity, and being reliable. So we, we value working solutions over speed and delivery. So I, these are four principles that I can, that, that I, you know, uh, have follow very dearly and and believe in and this is why i also like uh cardano and and things that projects that are uh, uh motivated to be reliable and to take their time make sure that the client the users are not harmed instead of the well we have um the companies you know, launch a product, and then they are essentially in beta testing the whole time. And then if things don't work, if things are not profitable enough, then they just switch it. And then they say, hey, customer, well, sorry, um, we have to change our business because we are not making enough money. So, uh, but these other projects are, you know, uh, looking at the benefit of people instead of their own benefit. So that, when I was that manifesto that. written? Do you have is there a date on that? It's like two uh, days ago, yeah, right? It's been is, trending. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. A few days yeah. ago. Yeah. I, yeah. I think we, we have to take all the I think we have to take manifestos with a grain of salt in the first place because 
a manifest, I think what Satoshi showed is that a manifesto is inferior to a protocol, a functioning protocol, an immutable protocol. That, that more about it later. But I don't know. I feel like I think there's a big money grab going on in crypto right now. And uh, people, let's be honest, it's, there's a lot and a lot of money to be made still. Not, mm -hmm. not, I can't even call it the ICO boom anymore, but to having your own protocol. And there's what I call, mm -hmm. you know, the Andreessenwitz, the Andreessen Horowitzification of, of cryptography. <laughs> Did you just coin the phrase Andreessenwitz? <laughs> well, sure, yeah. We, the Andreessenwitzian. <laughs> well, but this is, I, I prefer uh, A16Zification. Let's let's go with that one. Yeah, and, <laughs> and you know, you can see they they took you know they've they've some brilliant programmers. They have Ram Cohen now, um, who is replacing proof of work with proof of space. And what is this coin? It's called Chia Coin, right? I don't, I, I don't think you can. Well, okay. So, I, it, my general take is you can't trust any of these projects because they're they're in the mood to say the right thing, to attract the right people, to get the funding, and the incentives are are, are very perverse. So, but I think the thing I would actually like to drill on is, in the world of of cryptocurrency, manifestos are dead or should be dead because. The code is the thing that rules it all. And then, you know, it's very interesting because that is a dictum in Ethereum that code is law, but it's only law when they mm. feel like it and when Vitalik Buterin says so. And so I guess manifestos are important. And this is definitely a continuation mm. of the discussion that legacy is semantics, like founder semantics made syntax. So mm -hmm. these manifestos are kind of like a meta syntax that becomes the actual syntax or the actual code that gets written down. But I, I, I'm very mistrustful of, of you know, what you have of goals like that. Yeah, so know, Google said, don't be evil. Are they evil now? So let's make a distinction between mottos and manifestos because, you know, I, I think don't be evil was a really cheesy thing. Um, and came back to bite. It them, meant right? a lot at one time. It was a very well, and you know, but you know, and you know, let's let's be fair. There's something to be said for hypocrisy because now we get to throw this in their face for the rest of eternity because they took a stand for it, right? And so there's something I, I to think say. They took it this out. is what I, I stand gone, for. They, they may have, but we're still going to throw it in yeah. their face, right? What, what, there is there is some cost to taking a public stand, precisely because you can then be accused of hypocrisy, which. I think someone once said is the only vice that you actually get in trouble for nowadays because uh, all that's left is authenticity. Um, but a, a more interesting point for me, I feel like it, it, the interesting thing about Dogecoin is that they framed it like the Agile Manifesto, right? We value this over that as a series of trade-offs. And that I think is actually uh, more useful than just a statement of values having a statement of trade-off saying, okay, when you're sorting through these 16 different combinations of uh, coins, then we're the group that if you, uh, that, you know, if, if what you're doing smacks of technical brilliance rather than utility, we're going to give you a rough time. I was curious mm -hmm. actually, because you mentioned that you really like Cardano, but they seem to be really focused on, you know, peer review and published scientific thought. And I'm curious, mm -hmm. Do you, if they, uh, you know, so the last three points I totally get, um, and, you know, like the second and third, I totally agree with you. The fourth is where you and I have a lot of friction, Ernest, right? Because I'm much more concerned about, like, uh, what we talked about last week, there's a tension that the most reliable system is necessarily the, the least adaptive because it moves the slowest, right? Mm -hmm. 
and you know they'll get a very yeah, sure. reliable implementation of the thing that they want, but it could actually be like a bad idea. And having a really reliable, rock-solid implementation of a bad idea is a risk. On the other hand, it's glad that somebody is taking that risk, right? Mm-hmm. You want some people to take that thing, and people who are gravitated. For instance, you know, I would, you know, the um, the you know, my perspective is I want to iterate cheaply and pivot. And to be fair, I have also gotten in trouble. Well, I've been working for like six months or nine months on something. I'll say, you know, this is the wrong idea. We should do something else. And people get really upset at me because they've invested a lot in that journey. <laughs> and, yeah. You know, and it's fair. So it's it's I said, like, you know, hey, I've got nothing left for you guys. I have to do something different. You guys are welcome to keep going without me. And they do. Right. Uh, and arguably, they've been more successful in some ways maintaining momentum I have because I keep jumping around to different things. And that is where having an open source, forkable world is uh, useful, right? Is you can say, you know, hey, I don't like the way you're doing this. You are welcome to try and do better, right? Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I think That's that right. is the first one I'm curious about how you reconcile their first point with Cardano's really trying to get this rock solid peer reviewed. Technical foundation versus the Dogecoin view on uh, utility rather than technical brilliance. Do you see any cultural differences between those two communities, and do you care one way or the other? Mm. Uh, being useful versus uh, having utility versus technical brilliance. If I can make I, it very sharp. Oh, sorry. Ah, go sure. Go ahead. Oh, uh, the sharpening was just going to be something like this, that the, the tension in, well, uh, that I think is coming to the foreground is that between practitioners and theoreticians. And I think what Ernie is saying is like, you know, this, this focus on peer-reviewed <laughs> research is, is more emphasis on ivory tower than, than practical know-how or practical solutions. would be one way. Point. What, what one point I was to say is that they focus, uh, is there a t- tension between pragmatic utility and like, is one person's technical brilliance another person's ivory tower perfectionism, or conversely, mm-hmm. is one person's pragmatic utility a excuse for sloppiness? Um, so to that point, I guess points one and four balance out each other somewhat. In that, you know, they say the utility and reliability, but not brilliance or speed. So anyway, and I think the interesting thing for me about those phrases, uh, one of my favorite mottos is in the Ruby community, they have a saying, it's nothing official, but they say, uh, we are nice because Matt's is nice, right? And it's not like people are never nice. David Hanamari Hansen is hardly known for being a nice guy. Uh, he's a provocateur. But when, people, when the culture repeats certain things, it reinforces them, and it does tend to um, push people to consider it. And What's more interesting to me is actually the uh, uh, specific actions people take to show how they lived out those values. Actually, this was fascinating uh, because it gets to the question of uh, one of my fascinating questions is how did language evolve? I don't know if I've had this discussion with either of you yet, but if you go to the Wikipedia page, it's like we have no idea because language is evolutionarily unstable because it's too cheap to lie. So why would anyone ever believe anything anyone ever says? Um, and one of the theories is that words were iconification of rituals. And so like the, um, the, the Star Trek Next Generation episode or 
Um, the uh, there's a wonderful line in a, a Far Side cartoon where they have a spiked tail uh, on a dinosaur. We call this part the Thagomizer after the late Thag Simmons, right? And for mm-hmm. me, the story I tell is my first uh, when I was a summer contractor. I was brought into Apple in 1997 by a guy named Jim Gable. And then a month after I came back, or like my first week I came back, I think as a full-time employee, he got Steve Jobs. And what happened is, is he shaded the truth in a report to a superior. And he says, I'm sorry, that's not acceptable. You're a great guy, but you have to go. And he did. And that was a public thing. And like, okay, the lesson here is that you do not shade the truth to your boss. And so, you know, 10 years later, when uh, the VP had a meeting and he said, when a new group joined, he said, you know, hey, one thing about us is we always tell the truth. Um, and Ernie, you know, I just wandered into the meeting by accident. He goes, Ernie, isn't that true? He goes, yeah, absolutely, we do. We tell the truth to each other. And I knew that and I could tell stories about what happened, why that, and that became part of the culture. So I think the, the bottom line is that you need to have a real culture that actually acts on the basis of certain things. But if you can create a healthy tension between the words you say and the choices you make, that is actually really powerful. You need both because then they reinforce each other. Mm. Yeah. And, and you can does it make you feel any better about manifestos, Anish? But it does. Well, and it, it actually, it really gave me a, a strong perspective on syntax versus semantics. And uh, mm. the, the, so think of it this way. A manifesto is pure semantics until it has a history of practice, right? And that's what you said. Right. Like, well, you know, at Apple, we, they were willing to make examples of people. And, you know, that's what showed that the words actually had meaning. And I think that that is, so in other words, history or a ledger is a weak way of doing what blockchain has done, which is to say that not only is there a claim that this thing happened, but I can prove it without relying on anyone else's authority. And those things are strongly related. Yeah, this is fascinating. This ties into this whole idea of lineage, doesn't it? Uh, I think we ended on the, the topic of legacy and also how uh, communities scale and, and leave legacies. And this idea of the immutable record that's shared and allows you forking is like, as long as you don't, that's an interesting thought. As long as you don't uh, obscure the record, I mean, actually the minimum criteria to be part of this community is that you don't, um, you know, hide the truth from people and you keep people the right to fork. And it, it, this, is, this is interesting talking about a manifesto or a constitution or a syntax governance is this idea of a immutable public history that everyone gets to see what happened. And the second is that uh, we try to maximize the right to fork is that uh, we, it's not that like you all, cause there's always going to be variations in gray cases. It's like sometimes you say, well, you know, I want to go silent for six months so I can work on this thing before I get ridiculed by my peers. Cause it's so crazy. It's like, okay, that's the thing that people can do. And it's not like we enforce that you uh, can't do it, but it's always looked at with skepticism. And you have to be really sure of your convictions to go against the grain. And then people will tell the stories of, well, this person did this and they really pulled it off. And so that shows the value of it. Or this person did it and it was a debacle. So you should never do that again. And you just keep those stories alive. And it becomes a, um, a cultural pressure 
to maximize openness, maximize forkability, and then people uh, have the freedom to swim against that current if it, if they can justify it. But they have to they do have to justify it to themselves and others to swim against that current. And we celebrate those who succeed based on those things. Yes, and and in that in in the the downside of forking is um, a you're going to have to swim upstream, right? You're going to have to fight the network effect of the distribution that's already taken place. Literally, if you're trying to merge. Like, <laughs> we, we talked about like the number of copies being like you know related to but not the same as the authority. So you're, the downside of mm-hmm. forking is you're going to have to swim upstream to some extent, and then there's also this tension which you brought up just a moment ago. Uh, between innovation and stability. So, so forking, let's call then, you know, there are soft forks and there are hard forks. Hard forking is bad to not necessarily the stability of the parent chain, but the stability of the ecosystem. And you can see this if you turn this into a corporation problem or let's say an organizational problem. This is why larger companies have trouble innovating and they generally have to acquire innovations because they develop so much inertial execution and there's, I guess the cultural lore, it's, it's like, I guess it's the innovator's dilemma, right? So the thing that made them successful is also creating their blind spots and also makes innovation very difficult. And I think what the Googles of the world have come out and said is like, well, we're going to clue you around that because we have one, we have lightning in a bottle on one thing, let's call it search ad revenue. And then we're going to have, and this has changed, I think, over time. So we should probably talk to people who are working there now. We're going to have lots of lightweight, independent threads of execution that kind of do their own thing and, and, and function as startups. Uh, although I think one of the problems is <laughs> those quote unquote startups have no concept of very little concept of P&L. Or and, and that is Mises. And, right. And, and interestingly enough, that is the problem of the economic calculation problem, which is, you know, the, the reason that a, a perfectly centrally planned economy will never work is they don't know the value of things. They don't know what it, what it costs. To and, and in fact, I, I think oh, okay. that's true. Actually, of all. Uh, so that's funny. I, I, I would actually give a, a different argument around that, uh, which is why to me, the, uh, essence of, of being in a startup is that uh, failure is an existential problem, right? I mean, this is the wonderful thing about my relationship with you, Anish, right? As we've walked through this journey with Quilt Data over the last six years, is uh, I have always found that when your runway is shorter, uh, I can get away with asking more obnoxious questions about your value. <laughs> I love it. I think that's very true. Well, and and there's probably an oscillator there, but um, yeah, when when failure is imminent, founders become you know, very willing to listen. To me, that's a rational pain calculation, right? Is that if I'm in a well-defined company with a cushy job and job security, and someone says, "Well, you know, should I try this risky thing?" It's like, well, I don't know if I propose that I'm going to look bad and it might hurt my hiring process. You know, like, why would I take that risk? But if I'm in a company that's going, like, we are two, three, two months away from running out of cash, and I think that was very much, you know, when Steve Jobs took over, Apple was literally six months away from going bankrupt. Because of that, he could get away with not just the founder effect, but also because of the urgency of the solution. Say, look, I know it's painful to have to do all these things, but losing our job and having to start over from scratch and the shame of failure is even more painful, so it's worth paying yeah. this price. Which is why Tim Cook cannot do, even if he was the same persona, he cannot do what Steve Jobs did, because Apple is not going to go out of business in six months. Right? It is just not rational to be that. Yeah, there's no urgency. Put yourself to that level. Right? It, Apple, like me, is a little bit flabby and middle-aged. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I, and you see it. I mean, the, the innovation is saturated to some extent. I think, you know, from two conversations ago, we said, 
there are only so many iPhones that can be invented, right? So it, it is unreasonable to expect companies to reinvent themselves so many times as to catch every wave, right? The iPhone happens right. one and, time. And also, mm-hmm. like, even, you know, like, you couldn't tell 100 engineers to lock themselves in a dorm for two years now when they're all millionaires, <laughs> right? Now, that is that were... is an issue. That is an issue. Although, for whatever reason, and I, I'm fairly close with some friends, some of my friends who still, still work there, there is a great organizational uh, executional urgency there that they still, and I yeah. think, you know, everybody, yeah. as you said, is well compensated. Doesn't have yeah, no, yeah. I mean, like, I'm saying like they, they are going to do uh, good work because there's a culture of hard work, just like, you know, Jeff Bezos, is, you know, Amazon and people are really cheap, right? That is part of the culture. But the step function of going from working, you know, 68 hours a week to locking yourself in a dorm for two years, like the iPhone team did, it's hard to imagine like that case was like, okay, we've only got so much money. We have to make a decision. And the, the choices between, you know, so we can only time box. It has to be authentic, right? When Apple says like, this is really urgent and we have to really sacrifice to do it. It has to be real. It's not, you can keep culture can keep it going for a while, but you can't do it for arbitrary things that nobody really believes is worthwhile. Right. You can't, people would try to like copy the Apple ethos at other companies, but the leaders yep. didn't have the moral authority to say, no, this is not worth sacrificing that, you know, to, to say, yep. and that's yep. the, uh, and that's the interesting thing is, um, and one of the challenges in the open source, you know, nonprofit space is that if you don't have a PNL, if you don't have an existential threat, if you don't have a leader whose job is on the line, how do you make those hard decisions? And who can call people to difficult tasks, right? That's why, you know, and, you know, the, to Ethereum, you know, Vitalik made the call. I think one of his mentors told him that, do you want to be the, uh, the reliable currency of choice for drug dealers and child pornographers, or do you want to be the world computer? And it's like, you know, I don't know if that was the right framing, but that was the framing that he heard from his mentor and it made sense to him. And that's why he made the choice he did to fork. Ethereum was like, no, my basically saying, my public image of being uh, a trustworthy, uh, a, a well-stewarded world computer is more valuable to me than being an absolutely mathematically inviolable blockchain, right? And that was yeah, a reasonable what, choice. It, it, it would have been better if he had made that as a manifesto ahead of time, or at least, yeah. you know, talked about the trade-offs more cautiously. And it was a very like, double-edged sword. Right, right, because yeah. a world computer is an extremely difficult, amorphous, impossible to hit target, right? It arguably doesn't mean anything, but the reason I ch- was chuckling is it, it sounds like Steve talking to John Scully, you know, sorry, whatever you said, the, the currency of choice for child pornographers, or what, that's, you know, do you want to keep selling flavored water? Bigger water so, saves the world, yeah. And, right, and you, know, you know, and the question is, is that like, you know, and we, you know, you can turn that around, it's like, you know, there, you know, there are some people who've tried to change the world that, you know, I, I wish Hitler had stated as a soft drink salesman right now. I don't know if he ever did that. But, you know, like not everyone is that, you know, we live in a culture where it is normative to want to change the world. And that's almost uncritically celebrated as a good thing to make a dent in the universe or whatever. But it's like, you know, a lot of people outside Silicon Valley say, you people, you could <laughs> you should use a little bit more humility and caution. There's a wonderful framing of this I have to share because it's my sister podcast our sister podcast, uh, Today We Choose Faces, which was inspired by a Roger Zelazny novel. Um, and in this, the, the main figure is a, a 1970s gangster who's transported to the future, becomes a hitman, and goes to another planet to kill this business rival. 
and it turns out civilization is about to fall apart. And this guy, Siler, he says, you know, I could see everything that was going wrong in culture and I was going to fall apart, but I was like Hamlet. I was just too frozen with all the options, everything to go wrong and every intervention that could backfire that I just couldn't bring myself to act. Whereas you, having a very small amount of information, just became laser intense focused uh, like a fellow on just finding that one objective and just destroying it utterly, disregarding everything that came in its way. And in some sense, we're both tragic figures. You know, his claim was that, I don't know if this is true, that if Othello had a Hamlet's problem, he would have just killed his uncle and been fine. And if Hamlet had Othello's problem, he would have just sat around and thought about it until he realized he was being played. And that sort of Hamlet versus Othello trade-off, I think, is a fundamental conundrum in human society, is the more deliberative you are, the greater the chance that you will uh, second-guess yourself and miss the crucial time to act. Conversely, the more decisive you are, it's, it's gar- almost guaranteed that you're going to end up making some bad decisions that will come back to bite you or other people. And well, you can reduce the... Re- yeah. Yeah, you know, I, I love the so so the theme so a great televism comes to mind and the theme is is uh, this goes back to a theme from earlier today which is theory versus practice and Taleb's observation is that it is safer to think as a man of action would think than it is to act as a man of thought would act. <laughs> right. Yeah, well, I think <laughs> you know, actually Taleb has the uh, he has the dumbbell philosophy, right? Is that have right. you know your your seed corn in a really safe conservative set of investments, and then your exploratory stuff should be wildly scattered, right? You should have, you know, have everything either in, you know, gold or venture capital is kind of his dumbbell strategy, and and see you think about it that is that is where you want an ecosystem, right? You want to have the core infrastructure that is running the system to be very conservative, you know, you don't want to like randomly change your hash algorithm every week. You know, but you want to make it easy for people to innovate on the edges. And I think one of the interesting things is um, this idea that innovation always happens on the margins, right? Every musical genre in the U.S. was invented by black people. Um, You know, immigrants account for a disproportionate number of startups and small businesses, right? The, The reality is that when you have less to lose and more to gain, it is rational to take greater risks and vice versa. And what you would want really is to almost have a um, a healthy sort of mixing where things gravitate to the center and that people who want to slow down, they gravitate with it. Uh, what you have nowadays, you often have is what some, a company that, or an organization that needs to be agile has a bunch of old people at the top who have no energy and no appetite for risk. And that's when they die. Or you become... You become Adobe and, you know, every significant innovation that over the past, you know, three decades you had to acquire. Right. Which is fairly yeah. standard. And, 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 yeah. and, you know, and, you know, in some ways you can see that as a good thing in that, you know, you can marry the distribution of a large company with innovation inside, or you can see it as a tragedy where, you know, good ideas go to die, like happened with Yahoo. Um, and, you know, the answer is that there's, you know, there's, there's some mix of both. Uh, again, the idea of the right to fork and an immutable history, uh, a culture that celebrates that, where, where it's like, you know, hey, if you, and this is what, you know, open source projects do, is they have their long-term support branch, right? Uh, you know, Basecamp, I think, is actually uh, a good example of this, is every time they do a major version, they freeze the other one for the life of the internet. 
And it's like version one is still there. You, if you are an existing company, you keep using it and we will make security patches and not change it if that's what you like. And I think that that vision hmm. of, you know, and it's like, you know, Hey, if I want to have the old version, let me keep having it. And I'm willing to pay the cost of supporting it. And, uh, but the rest of the organization go ahead and do the next great thing. Um, mm-hmm. And I think that that is the, um, is, is you want to sort of, it's like, hey, these are all rational trade-offs to make depending on the context. And you want to make it as easy as possible for people to choose the right context. And the, uh, you know, the, the, the people managing the core are celebrated for their consistency and the people working on the fringes are celebrated for their adventurousness. And that's okay. That's actually a good thing. And they have a little bit of mutual skepticism and antagonism towards each other. And that's fine as long as it's a healthy rivalry. Hmm. Now, in this, in this world of, of semantics becoming syntax, right? So in, in, we mm-hmm. made another interesting observation, I think, two calls ago, that the job that the CEOs never knew that they had is to select what the active branch is or, or that they are responsible for accomplishing these merges across multiple branches of execution. But I'm present to something uh, which I think is very a significant difference that is missing, that is present in the world of code, that is not present in the world of law. And if we want to sketch what a datocracy looks like, there's a gap we're gonna have to bridge. And that is, if Mm. I fork an open source project, Mm -hmm. what I create is objectively either executable or interpretable. distinction doesn't matter what what i create so, either sorry. objectively and when you talk about forking open source project do you mean forking forking the code branch or do you mean like forking x386 from x windows or like oh good question i'm literally like a literal fork on github so so i'm, I'm literally gonna okay, fork just, the code the, just forking the code forking the code okay. yeah right so so but here's the thing so what i'm saying is that there is an objective measure I won't say of the quality of the fork, of, of the executability and runability of the fork, okay? This is not a property of culture or yet, okay? So here's what I'm saying is there is an objective arbiter or interpreter, the compiler, the interpreter, the computer, which can turn our syntax into an executable, okay? We don't have, the law is not nearly as precise as the formal languages of computer science. And I guess I just want to call out this tension. I want to, so in other words, we have to be very careful in bringing this metaphor of forking to culture and to organizations and to things that aren't code because there's no executable. And there's no well, formal you know, language, there's no formal It's funny language. you should say that because it has happened a few times, right? So like one of my favorite examples is how American jurisprudence forked out of English common law. Right. And so English common law from before the 1776 is a perfectly valid precedent to use in American courts. But anything after that is not. That's interesting. You know, okay. so, so and, and, you know, so the question is, is that huh. they well, you know, so one can argue that and also like some forks, you have the same problem. Like when I'm forking to a new uh, CPU architecture, you know, well, you know, that's kind of a fork in a new context. And it's like, is it the same thing as well? Are the tests the same? Whatever. So. Yeah, it is uh, qualitative, but I think maybe the, the, actually it's one of my original problem, the statement of, okay, if I fork the code, it's one thing, but if I want to fork the project and fork the governance and fork the systems and the processes, that's much harder, right? And that's the right thing. Yeah, keep going. Right. And what's interesting is that what you're really saying, well, I want to fork the culture and the value. And sometimes it's a deliberate fork. Sometimes it's an accidental fork. Um, But in fact, 
the interesting thing for me, and this is where maybe I can drag my other friend Rohit into this, is his, he's working on governance as code, right? The idea that you can, in principle, for some level of things that you currently describe in your bylaws or your rules of practice or your audit statements, you can implement those as actually code. And then you actually, what you really want is to be able to have like a repository of best practices for like how you manage security incidents or whatever, and then be able to fork those and change your behaviors uh, in a very sort of deliberative encoded way. I mean, the whole best reason that we have governments by laws rather than governments by man is precisely turning semantics into syntax, right? The fact that we oh, have yeah. written laws and, and in fact, exactly the whole point of case precedence is precisely this immutable public record, right? That's, that's the right. only thing yeah. they have. Um, well, and, and that, that's the so, analogy. And, oh. Yeah. So the question is, is like there was an inflection point when we went from, uh, you know, the God King to uh, written laws, like the laws of the Medes and Persians, which cannot be changed, to constitutional monarchies, uh, to uh, things like, uh, well, I guess even around that same time frame, give or take a few centuries, was parliamentary deliberate discussions of law rather than just, you know, the word of the king. And there's all these evolutions, which increases both the uh, the specificity of what was written down from Ten Commandments down to sort of the Magna Carta or the Bill of Rights. You know, there's an elaboration that goes on. And the deliberateness and uh, let's even say inclusiveness on the part of the governed to the governing, right? And we can see those trends occurring throughout history. And what can make a case is that, you know, maybe there is room for another inflection point. One of my favorite phrases is that society evolves when we find new ways to resolve arguments, right? So trial by combat was an improvement over assassination. Oh my God. Trial by jury was an improvement on trial by combat. Uh, the scientific mm. method was a radical step forward in how you resolve disagreements between students of the arcane, uh, uh, alchemy, and so forth. And um, the GitHub pull request, this is where I saw this quote, is Thank like you. one of the most extraordinary uh, improvements in the ability of humans to resolve arguments, in that you have a precisely specified way of doing it, and you have a ritual that you go through for viewing and merging, and, oh, by the way, you also have the option of just forking. Um, and that, That's right. like, it, it, it seems or to cloning, me that... Right? Like you, or cloning. And not be right. bothered. Yeah. Cl cloning, yeah, cloning and fork, right, yeah. Uh, 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 well, and, and the whole point is that actually the, the, the clone, fork, merge, you talked about swimming upstream. I wasn't sure if you're trying to be literal in terms of pushing and merges back upstream, but that literally is the problem, <laughs> is that if you find some innovation, you want to push it back upstream, uh, and, you know, Puritans and separatists go back and forth on what they're actually doing versus the labels, right? The Puritans who came to the U.S. were actually separatists rather than the original Puritans who wanted to purify the Church of England. They ended up forking uh, because they couldn't get their uh, their their, their uh, pull request approved. Um, yeah. But they tried. So there's something really powerful, and you, you ended up taking some of the words right out of my brain, which is I was – I wanted to say earlier that the pull request is arguably one of the most constructive forms of argumentation ever devised by mankind. Now here's where yes. things get interesting. So everyone in this podcast in particular is familiar with the theme of software eating the world. And so what we started to develop, I mean, the argument I was making is that, look, when you fork a code project, there's either an executable or an interpretable or there's not. Okay, true. And, and there is a, 
an entity which parses a formal language and the language either parses or it doesn't and a tremendous amount of ambiguity is removed. Yeah, so and in fact, here's the, the funny parallel. thing is that everything you said, except for the word formal, applies to everything else in culture. <laughs> well, so here we go. Well, okay, well, that, that's, that's exactly where I'm going with this. So, so yeah. um, the, the analog, what I'm trying to say, the legal system is in some sense the uh, executor or compiler for society bear with me for a second and it has yeah. case law is like the ledger that says you know this is this is the record of practice okay and then there's a system of checks and balances but but here's where it got interesting so in that the the what i have never quite thought of smart contracts as wanting to eat the entire legal system and and there is a certain belief you know i think in in the in the cyberpunk community in in satoshi's movement that human institutions are arbitrary and I, I've never heard them say it as, you know, all this fuzzy semantics needs to be turned into syntax. So, so can we look at the smart contract as wanting to, as wanting to eat the legal system? But yeah, you know, the funny thing is, I think, you, you know, even Bitcoin has forks, right? There are hard forks to Bitcoin, sure. Right, and that's the whole point. There, is that, none of like, them are you know, successful, there is always, that's another matter. Well, you know, Bitcoin Cash has some, and they'll, they'll, everyone's trying to do this fork, right? Where they're trying to do the double the Bitcoin fields and transactions, and some are going for it and some can't. I thought Bitcoin Cash actually was the sort of classic Bitcoin, if you will, is a real thing there. And I think that's kind of no, the, the they're point the big blockers. Here. That, that's a whole yeah. Well, okay, but let me put it this way then. Okay, but certainly like the Bitcoin governance, where they they have to actually work hard to make sure that we don't have fifty percent. Like it is actually a conscious thing that they have to make sure that there is not you know, three uh, validators that own over 50% of the Bitcoin uh, market, right? Is like there is this governance layer which has to exist where they approve patches and say these patches should go out and these changes are important and they're not. It's not like there's Maybe, no... So definitely in BSV and Ethereum because those code systems are more centralized, but in but Bitcoin, the miners, the miners, no, the miners yeah. have to adopt the protocol. So, so they can, well, yes, they it's do. completely at the choice they, of miners. Well, yeah. yeah. But, but everyone, everyone can always adopt the point. People are still doing it. People still use Ethereum Classic, right? The people who didn't like the fact well, they forked it, that's yes. still there. But right? it costs but the point is, you is that, something like, to, to run a mining. Everything system. costs you something, right? That's the whole point. Everything has a cost. And there is, I think this is a point, is that there is this myth that, uh, you know, I think the syntax semantics distinction, Neil Stevenson talks about this more explicitly, is that, there is a segment of the population, particularly in Silicon Valley, particularly computer scientists, who believe there is no such thing as semantics and everything is reducible to syntax. And that is the idea that we could run the government without any human intervention. It would all just be laws executed perfectly on a machine. And my mm -hmm. belief, which is in some sense a religious belief if you prefer, is that the digital is always a subset of the real. And, you know, just like, I you know, agree. finite numbers. Yeah, I mean, and then like mathematically, it is true. The rational is literally a subset of the real. <laughs> and well, and, and you can, can use the rational. Go ahead, finish it up. Rational is powerful, right? Uh, but it's, it is always a subset of the real. And when you can convert that's the real true. into the rational, that's good. But it's always lossy and there's some error and some rounding well, up and down agree. and underflows and underflows, right? And this is the thing that, you know, um, I still feel like uh, Kevin said something about quilt data that I'm still trying to unpack is that it's not just about uh, the bits. It's not just about the data and the code. It's about the humans who say this code works for this purpose. 
And knowing that that audit trail, not just of all the unit tests that passed, but the human who said that this is good enough is really important. And this is the thing that I think when people say software eating the world in the, so the hard you know, general AI case is they really think that software is everything. But the reality is that, uh, actually this is my company just had a tweet about how, or, um, an article that was talking about how you know, autonomous cars are as far away now, if not further away than they were five years ago. Uh, and, but our company has said, well, our goal and is not AI to replace the drivers. In that state, by the way. Yeah. Like that's what the AI the, winners were all about. It's like, oh, we're almost there. Oh, never mind. <laughs> yeah. But the interesting thing we say is that like, our job is not to get rid of human drivers. Our job is to make human drivers better. And I think that that is the perspective of this revolution, which is a trade-off of value manifest or whatever. Is that like, no, we actually like human beings. We think human beings are a good thing to have, and it's a good thing to be human. The problem is that how do we make humans better uh, by giving, by one, giving them an immutable history of their public decisions, and then making it easy for individuals and organizations to innovate on the edges by forking if the dominant reliable system is not working well for them. And yeah. the idea is that if we can, I think this is part of our philosophy genre, and I think like kind of encode this would be interesting is that this is very much a, a very humanistic view of technology. Like we love technology and it's going to be powerful, but it is to augment humanity, not replace it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And so there's a, I can't call it clever. I think it's appropriate. So everybody's familiar with AI. Less people are familiar with IA, intelligence amplification, which is a kind of human in the loop computing. And in order to do what you just aspire to, which is, hey, we believe you, uh, it's something like this. It's like, we believe humans are a good thing. We're not trying to eliminate humans. We want to make them more effective. But in order to do that, we need to know what humans are good at versus what machines are good at. And, you know, yeah. I think that's what human in the loop computing is all about is, hey, let's let the, you know, whatever it's going to be, brute force. Uh, I hate to reduce artificial intelligence to that because it's much more. And if you look at some of the new alpha zero, like the heuristics, they're just stunning and amazing. The kinds of intelligence decisions are they're able to make, but it seems to me that human and machine working together is pretty much the, the theme that everyone in one way or another is driving towards. And even if we solve an entire class of problems, I think we're a long ways away from completely solving self-driving, but suppose that were solved, we would just do different things while we were in vehicles. We wouldn't cease to exist. Right, yeah, mm -hmm. the, the, uh, the, so this is the, uh, taking some notes here. I think one of the interesting um, – um, uh, let me just kind of throw this in here because I wanted to say it anyway, which was my – one of the things that started this after I talked to Ernest at the end of last season was the city of, of revolutionary transparency. And actually, I like that phrase for a couple of levels. One is the transparency piece is this picture of the uh, immutable public record. But the idea of revolutionary is that um, capturing this idea of like uh, encouraging variation, diversity, forking, and change. And this, um, the premise, and this is, I think, the question of how do we grow this thing? The premise is that uh, transparent ecosystems inevitably outcompete information hoarders. And so, apart from any moral or humanistic justification, you could make a hardcore utilitarian argument that if people with our values 
practice the sort of transparency, radical transparency, we will outcompete those who do not. Mm -hmm. And I'll give you the other two points there because I, I like them at the time. I'm not sure how well they've aged. One is that asymmetric information is the key enabler of structural injustice. Um, it's a provocative point, but it matches the cases that I can think of offhand. Like a lot of the redlining, for example, was a case where some people knew this was happening, others knew it didn't, and so they were able to get away with it. And when that uh, transparency, when that sunlight came in, suddenly it stopped happening. Um, I don't know if that's true for everything, but it certainly would stop a lot of it. Uh, the second is that in the absence of information monopolies, the only competitive advantage is asymmetric virtue. So in a world where, or maybe trust might be another version of that, right? But the idea that if everyone can fork, then you'll say, well, I know you're forking and you're promising this at a lower price or whatever, but there's a tension between that and the reliability of the main branch. And it really is, who do I think is actually going to do a better job? And you find this in liquid markets, right? If everyone has the same raw materials, the person with the best customer service ends up winning, uh, assuming a free flow of information. So uh, it's not quite where we're going here, uh, but I think that there's a sense in which this, these uh, virtues that we are aspiring towards and I think maybe what's interesting to me is I, I want to actually throw out the word virtue, actually, is that there is maybe not so much in the uh, medieval sense of what pleases God in the abstract, but more in the Aristotelian sense of this is what enables something to work well. So I think there's a strong connection between the two. And I think this idea of um, which, which things we consider virtues or even just the fact that we think of this at the ecosystem level rather than the organization or even society level uh, is important. Anyway, that was a somewhat off-topic rant, so I will set up for a moment. Um, I can uh, throw up the uh, idea of uh, trust. Like, uh, as, as much as we try to um, add trust infrastructures, Trust is really a personal thing. Like, uh, I trust uh, scientists because I have, uh, even though scientists are are not infallible, uh, I trust the way that they work and and, and the, the use of knowledge and practice. Some people trust uh, priests, and because of all the reasons, religion, uh, costumes, uh, so. The level of trust that some entity has is not uh, the entity can only provide transparency like like we have been discussing in history. Uh, these are the history of all our decisions and and uh, our values and things like that. And whoever, like uh, beauty is in the eye of the beholder. So to a particular person or even organization, that history and and those. Uh, uh, decisions and values are uh, engender trust because let's say uh, all the decisions or the vast majority all adhere to the values like we can uh, go back to the uh, Dogecoin thing so you decided to do a, implement this project does it match the tenets uh, that you adhere to if they do then you can trust that the company itself or the, the entity itself is um, 
strives to be what it purports to be. Then there are some Ooh. others. There's the, uh, yeah. right. so, then but, there's the, uh, yeah, so go ahead. Um, yeah, so I think that when you think about that, when I think of I trust someone, I think I can mean two different things by trust. It's worth calling those out. One is that they have acted in a reliable manner in the past, right? Mm -hmm. And that is the basis of a lot of trust. But another version of trust is I know what their incentives are, and therefore I can trust them to act in line with those incentives. And then there's a third version is that, well, actually, I have more power than they do, so – uh, and they know that, so they have to trust me. Like, for example, right now that we have uh, phone number portability, I have power over my cell phone provider, and therefore uh, I trust them more to not do stupid things to screw me over because I know I have more power and that I can fork or leave. Um, there, there's a power asymmetry. Uh, there and, and, my and by the way, are the same thing, or if there's correlations, or if they're distinct. I think I can bring it together. So, so uh, are you familiar with the concepts of voice versus exit? So, so uh, voice would be no. like like sub submitting. Uh, I'm going to bring it deliberately into into code world. Voice is you know trying to change the system. Exit is creating a new system. Okay, so voice is, hey, please accept my PR. Please accept my PR. Exit is you know either I'm starting a completely new project. I'm forking this project and doing my own thing. So, so voice uh, versus exit. This is take my marbles and go home. Is what they call it in my that's right. In my that's right. Well, well sure. Well, and so what, what I'm saying is, exit has become a much more cheaper and much more viable option because of the way code ecosystems have evolved. Number one, and you know the problem with the, the glory of exit is that you get to make your own rules. The problem is you you now. Uh, lose the network effects of, of what the dominant technological paradigm was. There, there's uh, some letter, letter from the Spartans, you know, who were, you know, they remembered as warriors, but they're also great philosophers. And, and Laconia was in Spartan. So this idea of laconic wit. And, and, and it's one of their letters. And, and what they say is, you know, we, we both know, and they're talking to somebody, I think, who's in a compromised position. They say, we both know that justice is, a meaning, is only a meaningful concept amongst equals. For the strong do what they can and the weak suffer what they must. And so this is now, I mean, it, that maybe that is a big part of what it means to have a datocracy is that the symmetry of the information doesn't allow asymmetrical power to enter into, into play. And therefore, you can have, a, I don't like the word justice because it's very amorphous, but you can have a hope of consistency and continuity and fairness in an ecosystem when the participants have reasonable amounts, have, have equal amounts of power with respect to voice and exit. Just a thought. That's a really fascinating, mm -hmm. like, and maybe the weaker statement is the best we can do is ensure equal data power. That everyone has, like, the, you don't want to have a world where the rich can hide their tracks and the poor are under surveillance all the time. You don't want to have a world where only you know the powerful can publish everywhere and the uh everyone else is silenced right so the, the magic of the internet permissionless in, in, in innovation yeah. um you know you, you know it certainly is true that it's not that we a, a that you can get there completely because if you're rich and powerful enough you can always find ways to proxy yourself and hide more uh and you know 
so it's not that it's a it's a state that you can achieve, but it's an ideal to aspire towards. It's like, hey, if someone if you make more money than everyone else, but everyone knows exactly how you made it and how you're spending it, that's probably not a bad thing because if they feel it's inappropriate, they can do something about it. It's actually only the secrecy, um, and sure, like you know, if you at some point you're drowning in data, but then you know people have to take it upon themselves to actually do the hard work of curating and presenting it. And as long as everyone has a free chance to do that, then you know that's arguably the best you can do, at least at the system design level. You can do other things in the values of, of culture wow. and celebration and virtue, but at least a, a, a starting point. So this is the, the, the issue we've been avoiding, I think, without meaning to for several calls. And that is that, uh, so in order to have the world which you just described, Ernie, which is to say, a world of symmetric information and where privilege does not dictate which information is exposed and which is not, we have to realize, I think, that all organizations are subject to capture, right? So regulatory capture being one example. There are, there are many examples of, uh, let's just stick with regulatory capture. What I'm trying to say is we haven't yet identified or nominated the problem that you cannot, that's the whole point of a decentralized autonomous organization or decentralization in the first place is that I don't ever rely on a central authority to determine the validity of a fact on the ledger. And we haven't really tackled that. And I don't even know what it, in, in, in other words, the entities where we're talking about applying datocracies, uh, countries, communities, companies, they all rely on central authorities, which can be captured and will, you know, have the politicking problem, which is, you know, Congress doesn't, doesn't live, whether they want to or not, doesn't live by the same rules as the rest of America and doesn't need to. Right. So, yeah, so here's the interesting, yeah. I, I have a Who, who's the, and by the way, code that. doesn't have this problem because you either compile or you don't. Right. It's an well, yes, but, but, code, but code repositories do. And that's what we were talking about today. Right. Someone has to say, which is the master branch and what was goes into it. And if you have an idiot in charge of it, you get the SSH exploit. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. <laughs> in, in a static world of code, sure. But in the world of buggy code that needs to be patched and updated, you absolutely have this problem. Right? Is that you still need governance? Well, okay, no, but I was going for something different, which is that we don't, okay. we're, two programmers are not going to argue over whether or not something is executable, whereas two lawyers will argue all day long about what a given case is. But, but this Those is are, the problem that Ernest and I started from is you can guarantee readability, but you can't guarantee understandability. I can say that I read this. I don't even but, know if you can guarantee readability, but. You can, you, can, you can guarantee, someone can parse the document and say, yes, I know what I have. I have that is a well-formed English sentence with words that are in the dictionary and are in principle understandable. Right? I can, uh, versus the converse where I can throw an X error and say, I cannot read this. It has violated the rules of grammar or it has you know, violated the vocabulary that we have agreed upon. Right? In that sense, you can define readable. And literally, there are measures of readability that people use for books all the time, right? It is a thing. Um, but the point is, is that you have it, readability is well defined. But like to say, look, executability, you know, the compiler executing it is not the same as the program being bug free, right? We all know that. 
Yeah, um, yeah, I understand. But right? but the effects yeah, are observable. So, How soon is the question? But there there are immediate. Yeah, effects. well, that's what this is, but this is just like I said, you can you can have something that's sort of well formed, which is parsable, right? And it meets have a strict grammar for what counts as a valid document. Uh, that you can have, but that's different than saying you actually understand it or that the program actually does what it's supposed to do, right? Because there's all sorts of context and inputs and whatever, and you can create some, I think that's actually, ah, this is actually the vision of datocracy is that, is twofold. One is that the only thing we have to agree on is sort of the protocols and formats of our data infrastructure. That is the thing that is the shared central, um, uh, the, the shared uh, work product. And that almost, is something almost. that could be, that could have a, a, a set of, it's, it will never be perfect. It will always be improved upon and iterated upon, but there will be a sense in which that solves the readability problem uh, to the extent it can be solved. Understandability problem is purely a matter of culture, which is something that is continually going to be evolving. And in fact, we will continually compete on. But if two people say, well, I'm the central authority, uh, then they say, well, no, because, uh, um, you know, they can say, I want to be the central authority. So, well, then there's a question of social ties and voluntary associations. And if you have local resources that have to sort of choose to affiliate, that you could get a world, you know, it, like a, a federal system of this is where, you know, people agree uh, for various reasons to have um, affiliations that make sense. And then where they don't make sense, they debundle it, right? Um, the interesting thing is the, the way that I would solve the governance problem of the data infrastructure is you have the totally transparent being as the the creature who makes those decisions and that literally their white, their brain is plugged into the system uh, and they live in this goldfish bowl or brain in a vat or something such that, uh, that, you know, that's kind of the extreme science. But the practical matter is that it's kind of like the IETF in that all the protocols are public, all the adoption is voluntary based on the node. And in theory, at least, you, everyone knows who's making decisions, anyone can participate. And it's not hard to imagine that you could get to the place where it's not perfect and there's lots of science fiction stories about how you can subvert it. But that seems like the best we can do is have maximum transparency, maximum mobility, and maximize voluntary adoption at different layers of the stack. And then that everything that's right. on there's top of that is subservient to that. You could have nation states and corporations, or whatever, that have their own different rules, but to the extent, it's like you're talking about a data platform, to the extent they participate in the platform and take advantage of the platform, they have to abide by the social contract of the platform, both the technical enforcement and the social pressures to embody those values. Yeah, there's, there's one word early on, definitionally, that I would change it. And I think what you said was that in a datocracy, there's agreement on the data infrastructure. And uh, well, I want us to be more nuanced. So, so the infrastructure is an implementation detail. It actually doesn't matter. So it doesn't matter if I give you, I mean, it does, but it doesn't matter if I give you data that's stored in S3 or stored on a disk. That's not, that, that's not what matters for the decision-making capacity, the decision-making value of the data. So what, what, I, wanted to, what I want to say is what, what we should remember, I think last call, we said, you know, hey, what is, what is the meta contract? 
what is what are the set of qualities characteristics that make data sets not data infrastructure because they're very different things fungible mm -hmm. and so i just wanted the, what i what i would tweak about what you said is that it's not about the infrastructure we need to be very careful about this because i think it's one of the misunderstandings of culture around data is that hey you know we have files isn't this good enough no it's not you don't just need files you need immutable collections they need to have a history is it really protocol is that a better term yeah it's something like that it's really it's protocols or you know we were on this concept of containers right like we don't fight organizations don't fight over docker containers you i i give you a container and you deploy it like right and so and the reason that that works is because the contract of container is very well understood so sure protocols we have to pick something that isn't physical infrastructure because again that doesn't matter right and that, of course that's what i intended by the word infrastructure but it was in your context it's obviously much more concrete than the way i was thinking about it although there is a there there's another theory i have but that we'll save this for the last time it's 5 30 we should wrap up with closing arguments and topics for next time I'm sad that I think we've missed what, what the problem I was most interested in, and I, I'm, I'm culpable, I'm sure, in not solving it. But what is the constitution of a datocracy? So I'll just that can be our cliffhanger. But, but well, I'm well, still that's very the same curious. question: is what is the minimal set of shared infrastructure we agree upon? And the constitution kind of mm -hmm. is what defines what that is, and both the things that we must agree upon. And then the higher things that we things that we concretely agree upon, and the things that we abstractly aspire towards. Well, so here's my challenge, and I'll put in. You know, I don't, I'm not giving anyone a homework assignment, but I'll put in a few minutes um, if I can help. What What is the data set manifesto? And you know, this is something that actually came from our customers. And I, I won't. When they basically said, you know, I want ten commandments of data sets. What good sound data set engineering looks like, right? It's like. You, you, you shall not work with the local copy of the data. You should work with the copy from the repository. Okay, point number one. Point number two, the data set shall have documentation. So maybe if we can, a, a data set manifesto to me is something very concrete and it again defines the fungible units of datocracy. It might not be as strong as uh, the constitution of a datocracy, but I think it's something we can come, we can uh, uh, agree on. And, and, and it is, it is, concrete and it is very much in the spirit of that Ernest opened the call with is like hey here's this manifesto that's circulating what does it mean okay yeah I think that's a great question that we can uh, I think we chipped away at it a little bit today which is good but definitely worth picking up again next week Ernest did you have any other thoughts or suggestions no no I think that's a good uh, point to uh, study for next uh, episode yeah, I mean, one of the things I had an aspiration to do, which I will not promise to actually achieve it this week either, is to write the design brief for the Detocracy Constitution. Ironically, the way that I'm answering your original question, Anish, is precisely the conversation I was having with Kevin, which is that, like, I'm trying to figure out what is the thing that I actually want so that my life feels sane and rational rather than a bad episode of Silicon Valley. And if I can figure out how to articulate that, that might get us one step closer. Great. Mm -hmm. Thanks, everyone. All right, well, have, have a, a great good weekend. Week. Thanks, guys. Thank you, guys. Bye. 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 Bye.